0: Gospel, N.T. Wright. This video, or I guess episode, is really a summary, but not really a summary. I'm wanting to understand N.T. Wright's uh, version of the Gospel, I guess, but not really necessarily just give an exact summary of N.T. Wright's version of the Gospel. What I'm really wanting to do is just have a conversation with the words he wrote, and his ideas, and to bring out my own ideas because I believe, um, I have my own beliefs of the gospel and how I understand it. And so it's not just an exact bullet point by bullet point summary of what N.T. Wright's book, Simply Good News, is about. Really what it is is just me engaging with his text, uh, having a conversation uh, with what he wrote so no bullet points I mean there is bullet points but everything is paraphrased except I think I have one quote um, where I quote him exactly and even in that quote there is an ellipses because I just wanting to um, you know discuss simply good news discuss what the gospel is, what it means today because it's it's news. It's something that is new, something that is happening uh, right now, I believe. Um, but there are some problems when talking to people about the good news or the gospel. You know, A while ago, I was wanting to go and talk to people about the gospel more, and so I decided that I was going to go to a, this church. It was a Methodist church, and I walked in there. And I asked a lady at a desk if she knew what the gospel was because I was wanting to kind of get their version of the gospel. And the girl looked at me a little confused. Um, I know it's kind of a big statement uh, whenever you go up to someone or if I would go up to you or someone would go up to you and ask you, what is the gospel? What is it? What's this good news um, that Christians profess? And she looked at me... Um, like she was confused and then uh, she said well I'm not a theologian or anything and it made me kind of scratch my head because I was not expecting her to say that I was thinking that she would talk about Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection which is normally how people say what the good news is in the circles of Christians that I run into they talk about Christ, his death, his resurrection, or his death, his burial, or his resurrection. Um, and that is the good news. And that is the gospel. Um, but in the Bible, in the gospels, here specifically in Luke, um, Jesus says that I must preach. This is in Luke uh, chapter 4, verse 43. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the towns as well. It doesn't seem like he's talking anything about his death, burial, and resurrection in this verse. And there's other verses that he talks about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven or preach the good news or the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. And I know he has talked with his disciples after this about his death burial, his death, and his resurrection, and they don't understand him. But I think specifically here in this verse, I mean, maybe you can read his death, burial, and resurrection in forty-three. I really have no problem with that because of verse or 1 Corinthians 15 later, where he talks specifically, or Paul, the Apostle Paul talks specifically of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. But in here, it is in the context of a kingdom, um, is in the context of a government that is happening, that something is changing, there's something different going on. Um, and in 1 Corinthians 15, I've looked up here, um, it says in verse 1, Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. Move down to verse 3 For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died. For our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. So he died, he was buried, he was raised, and then he was seen. And so it looks like with the Apostle Paul here and also with Christ here in Luke 6, where in one sense the good news of the gospel is being discussed in the context of... Kingdom, and then just by looking exactly here into First Corinthians fifteen, it looks like it's only really talking about Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, which has been the main focus of the Christian circles that I've run into. And I think what Andy Wright does well is he's showing us um, the larger context and how Christ's death, burial, and resurrection fits inside this movement of the kingdom. That these aren't two different Gospels, but I think two different levels of focus on the Gospels. Um, Like in 1 Corinthians 15, it's a very close-up. It's like you're pulling out a microscope and looking at the exact part of what makes it the Gospel. Like what makes this kingdom movement um, happen? Um, What is the catalyst to the kingdom? and how it got started, and how this the news became good. But here in Luke 4, it's more of looking at the forest. It's the big picture, like in Nebuchadnezzar's dreams, um, back in Daniel, where he has a dream of a rock being carved out of a mountain, rolling down the hill and smashing the statue, and then the mountain covering the entire earth. That is the big picture of the gospel in Nebuchadnezzar's dream of God's kingdom being carved without hands. Things, Something is being done differently than all the other parts of the statue. Like you have the head, the arms, uh, the waist, legs, feet, all those represents a, of different kingdoms, and they all conquered the world in a certain way. But something is going to be done differently with this with this um, rock being carved without hands, rolling down the hill, smashing this statue. There's something's different about how this gospel, how this good news is going to spread, how God's kingdom is going to spread throughout the world. And you also have the other big picture of Nebuchadnezzar's dream with the tree, the tree that grows and it covers and shades the entire earth that's this large you could say i mean it's just one tree but it's looking at the big picture and i think that's what christ is talking about here but with the apostle paul is talking about is getting very up close to that that point where the rock is in the mountain and how is it being carved out it's getting how is it it's starting how is it working and so the whole thing itself is the gospel because it's a news and news is a story which i guess would be a good point to get into this next slide or my first slide really is that nt wright talks about how the gospel is good news and then good news is of course a story news has to do with a story i mean we have in the united states msnbc fox news cnn um, those are kind of the main news channels. I mean there's other ones like N- NBC, but I personally don't hear a lot about NBC. It's mostly those three. But news has to do with a story, something new that has happened. You know, like the, the word get the scoop on things. Like what, what new has happened in accordance with this narrative that is progressing. They go and they grab the most recent thing. And they plop that down on the, the progression of the narrative of what they've been covering. And so the news news has to be understood within the context of a story. And so the next question we have to ask is, what story are we talking about? What's this news? Um, you can understand that story by just what the Bible is. The Bible is the entire context of this news that's being covered by... A ton of different writers I mean you have uh shepherds, kings, um high officials, uh servants, slaves, people writing this um this book and it's they're covering this progression of what's happening, this narrative and it's like its own you could say news station is what the Bible is, this progression of what's happening in history um, and so the good news is... The, the latest thing or something that has changed. And so you have to go all the way back into Genesis to see um, why the news now is good because in Genesis it has God creating everything, announcing that things are good, everything that he makes is good. On the sixth day, he looks over all creation and he announces that it is all very good. But then things go bad. Um Eve eats of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and then God has to push Adam and Eve away. His relationship with them is different now. They cannot be in this garden of paradise and things just get worse and worse and worse. Uh, Their son Cain kills his brother and then from then on, Um, death enters into the world and things just progressively get worse and then you have in chapter 6 of Genesis where the hearts of men was continually evil. God wipes out um, the entire world, saving only Noah and his family. And then you've got um, Abraham, you've got the promises, they move down to Egypt and then Moses carries the Israelites to Israel and then um, you've got the judges, you know, through the prophets, you know, you got the kings in there too, all the way up until this moment that happened 2,000 years ago. Something different happened. After this fall, something has changed to where something good now is taking place, which God has only announced things as being good um, before the fall. He looked over creation, he announced that it was good, but after things are not good. And so the good news is the announce the announcement of this story that something has something this person did 2000 years ago has changed and it must be understood within the context of of a story. And another question that you can ask is what is a story then? Um i've I've taken some classes i've um on different stories, different types of stories you know I've got my my bachelor bachelor's in English literature, and so I had to take a lot of courses on what a story is and there's several different types of story but in is essence of what a story actually is it's it's conflict. You have to have some kind of conflict between two things. Like there's are several, several different versions of a story where it's like a man versus man. That's a conflict where you have two armies or two people who are in opposition with each other. Or man versus nature where you have man um, trying to go out and just stay alive to keep himself from dying because of all the horrors of nature of what's going on. And then you also have the story of man versus God. And the story of the Bible has all those different types of elements in there, where you have men versus men, and then also men versus nature. That's ultimately, uh, you can get the man versus nature from the curse that God gives Adam by saying that he has to work by the sweat of his brow, um, that he has to now subdue the earth. That, And you can also read later in Romans 8, where all of creation has been subjected to fertility um that uh but ultimately the big story is man versus god um but something in this verses and it's not so much a verses as a separation from as said in Isaiah where sin has separated us from God. It's created a chasm. Um, Some other translations will say, and I think it's in Isaiah 53, that sin um, creates barriers. It's putting barriers between us and God or it's creating this large chasm between us and God. But something this person did 2,000 years ago um, takes down the barriers. He closes the chasm and brings us back. Um, He... Ends this conflict, the large conflict of the Bible, the large conflict of the story that's being uh, resolved in some way. So, Paul's gospel told a different story than the gods of the Roman Empire. And this is some of the problem with going and talking to people about the gospel that, um, N.T. Wright talked about the Apostle Paul going into Rome and telling people about the gospel and how it was destroying the fabric that was holding the society together. The religion of the gods kept Rome working. It was like the glue. Uh, The word glue is what N.T. Wright uses. But their gods is what kept their society working and kept them together. And the, uh, you know, before I get into that, I wanted to mention another idea of a story because, uh, N.T. he ended up talking about Octavian and how Octavian's rise to the throne in ancient Rome, um, they went around telling people about the good news that Octavian is now the emperor of the Roman Empire. And he had a little conflict. You know, you can say a story of man-versus-man conflict with Antony. And um, eventually he won, and then people went around the empire announcing that somebody is in charge now and things are different because of it. Now, I didn't really know this story before I... Uh, read N.T. Wright's book he is a ancient um, historian, scholar uh, that's I think one of the PhDs that he has is in um, ancient history and so he's a lot more he's very well versed in ancient history and knows these stories and um, better than I do and so when he was talking about it it did make sense but the thing is is with the gospel and how somebody becoming in charge and causing um, things to be different works with any person who rises to power. Now this book was written in 2013, so, so N.T. Wright was not, of course, aware of the incidents that happened here recently in the U.S., which I started to think about of how things are now different with you know Donald Trump you know rising to the presidency and becoming the president of the United States. You know now Trump is charged and things are different because of it. I remember when I was the first time that I learned that he was becoming president, I was at work and they we had a TV on and it was announcing the news and everybody was standing in front of it watching Trump win the election. And I remember going Uh, back uh, into the back office and clocking out because you know my work was over and just feeling just weird inside like something I knew something was different I didn't know how things were different but I knew even though I clocked out like I had clocked out a hundred times before hundreds of times nothing was really different in my actions but I just I knew something was different out there because Trump was now the President of the United States. And I'm sure you have a similar story or a different story. Most of the people I talk to about Trump becoming the President of the United States think it's weird, think it's not so much offensive. Um, I know some people are very upset that he is now President. Um, But most of the people I talk to just find it strange that we have this you know, big-time real estate person who's also a uh, reality TV star, is now in charge of our country. Um, and my wife, she's a nurse. She works at the hospital, and she was also working whenever Trump became president. And one of the nurses that she works with, um, when she found this out, was running from room to room telling people that, Trump is now president of the United States. She was spreading this good news that things have changed for the better, that Barack Obama is no longer the president and we no longer have the continuation of that which, you know, everyone, at least here, I I live in Kentucky, everyone here saw Hillary Clinton as the continuation of what was going on with Barack Obama. All this, the bad things, I mean, this is the perspective of certain people. I don't really have a, a much of a, of a perspective, I think the same thing would have happened if Hillary became president, that everyone who was voting for her and wanting her to become president would have went around and spread and would have spread the good news that Hillary is now the president of the United States, the first woman to ever become president, and that this was a good thing. I'm just really making the point that anyone who rises to power and becomes um, a person on a seat of authority, like the office of the president of the United States, becomes automatically becomes the parody of of Christ, of Him rising to power, of Him becoming the King out of everyone on the earth. You know, as He says, and at the end of Matthew, um, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, that all authority has been given unto Me, that. Christ is now above everyone else. He also... I guess this also kind of ties into this point here that I'm making, is that Paul was going into the Roman Empire and he was destroying the social fabric by announcing that, really, Trump is not the person who's in charge of everything. Or if Hillary was in the office... Um, it would have been the same thing with her, or when Barack Obama was in the office. The gospel is the announcement that the, all the rulers of the earth are not really in charge. They're not the true king, if you want to call them a king. that's really almost a, an ancient, archaic word at this point. Um, that Christ is the person that is seated above all of them, And so they do not have as much control as what a king normally would. Um, And so the gospel gospel is the announcement of that. And in the Roman Empire, they not only had kings but they also had gods, and they had idols. And they worshipped these idols. And Paul's gospel has said that those idols were just man-made objects. They were just artifacts, which is a very offensive thing to say. It's a very offensive message and the gospel is a very offensive message to anyone who does not you know acknowledge it or even even to Christians it can be offensive um, if they are not living their life as if Christ is the one who's ultimately in charge um, you can look at my life. And watch me and how I act through the world and see what I do. And you can see probably certain areas where I'm acting as if Christ is not in charge. The way I interact with people, the things that I say. Um, and there's all sorts of things that if you, you look at me, I, I'm not fully living as if the gospel um, is the case. If that is the true reality of what's happening right now. And I can, we can do this with anyone. I can do this with you if I can watch you and see how you're acting out in the world and seeing the conversations that you're having with people, the places that you're going, you know, even the food that you're eating or the shows that you're watching. And I know this is kind of a judgmental thing, but I'm just saying that this is what it would have been like or what it's like when somebody comes to you and announces that ultimately Christ is in charge – these things that you're doing um, have no meaning. Like, it does not mean anything. and It may, like, give you a little kick in the chest to say, for someone to come up to you and say, the stuff that you put your hope in, the stuff that you really care about, these gods that you're worshipping, they're just man-made artifacts. I know with us they're not man-made artifacts. They were back in the ancient Rome, but with us today... Maybe all the video games that you're playing or all the different shows that you're watching, the gospel puts that into context. And I'm not saying any of that stuff is wrong. I'm just trying to show you how um, controversial the gospel can be because it's saying that the story of what's happening right now is actually different than what you think. You think the, the story... I don't know what what you think the story is, but if it's not what the gospel is, then, of course, it's wrong. And to say that it's wrong is – um what word? I'm not trying to think of – it's a bulldozing statement, but is a uh, – I'll just say controversial. I think I, I may end up thinking of the word that I'm wanting to say later. And so – but the way it goes about spreading this gospel is not the same way of how you know Octavian rose to the throne or how New President Trump rose to the throne or how kingdoms have spread themselves throughout the earth. It's not done in the same way, and I have this quote by Julius Caesar, Vini, Vidi, vici." that I came, I saw, I conquered. That is the way things have done, been done traditionally you can go all the way back to how the Israelites um, came in charge of Israel through David and the sword or through Joshua conquering the land of Canaan, that they did it by the sword, they did it by fighting. And you can go back and think about the statue that was created. You know you have the gold head, you know the silver shoulders and arms. Um, and you have the different metals that were created by hands. And it shows that, um, and I think it's a way of talking about symbolically that things were done through war, that things were done through fighting. And now um, this rock comes carved out of the mountain and rolls and smashes uh, the way things have done before, that something is different that's going on with the gospel, that way things have been done before. And this is what the Jewish culture was not expecting. They were expecting a different type of Messiah, a Messiah that was going to lead, lead them to war to retake their state of Israel back from the Roman Empire, which was true. But the means um, by which Christ was going to do that was not through the power of the sword. And you can see this, this conflict or this, uh, I guess, misunderstanding in uh, John 18, 36. This is when Jesus is before Pilate, and he says that my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. Now, some of his his servants did fight. Peter, he took out his sword and sliced off Malchimus' ear to prevent Christ from um, being taken over by the Jews, to being delivered over by the Jews. He tried to prevent that from happening. And so you can see the conflict or the misunderstanding that Peter had of Christ, that he wasn't going to do the thing, going to... You know, rise to power and rise to authority in the same way that the Israelites conquered the land of Canaan. And of course, I think we can also say that um, we can give Peter a little bit of leeway, and also the Jews a little bit of leeway, because things have never been done this way before. The way Christ did it, the way Christ is now spreading the gospel throughout the world. Everything has always been done by the means of what Peter was trying to do with the sword and when he cut off Malcolm's Malcolm's ear. Um, Sometimes, you know, Christians have reverted back to those means, like with the Spanish Inquisition or the Crusades, where they have reverted back to, you know, what Peter was trying to do. Um, But here... In John eighteen thirty six, Christ is announcing that things are actually going to be done differently, and even in Acts uh, one, I think I could probably just scroll down from here. Okay, Acts one, verse six, you can see that um, his disciples still did not understand what was going on. Um, It says in verse 6, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, when will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And so, you know, I don't think that really has to do with uh, the fighting through different means. I think they just had the times mixed up. But I think the other passage that I showed with uh, John... uh, 18-36 and also with Peter and Malchus that they were not expecting things to be done the way Christ was doing them. And so what does he do? What does he do on the cross that is different um, than the way things have been done through the past and the way things are continually being done um, today? you see the conflict between you know, Syria and Russia that they're fighting and then we're also thinking about going in there and trying to help out somehow. You know, Our conflict with Iraq or Afghanistan that we're going in there with guns, with weapons and I'm not getting into uh, pacifism here. I'm just saying that the way Christianity is now spreading the kingdom of God I don't think that you know what we were doing in Afghanistan and Iraq was for spreading the kingdom of God. I'm I'm pretty sure everyone um, agrees with that fact. That it had nothing to do with God and had nothing to do with the gospel or the kingdom. But the way in which the gospel is spread and how we bring it to other keep other people is different. And through Christ's death and resurrection. Um, changes the whole landscape of how the gospel is spread and how we are now announcing that death has been defeated um, and how we are now spreading that good news. Um, And it's through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection that Jesus soaks up the full power of evil in the world, the evil that should have been done to us, done to everyone, that he soaks it up through his death on the cross. And then now, by defeating death, everyone who comes to him and, and follows him has now power over death. Which is a huge. I'm trying to think of how to explain how huge this deal is because, you know, what Octavian, what he was able to do better than Antony was he was better at giving people death if they did not follow him. He was better at going to war and killing people. And that's essentially what Israel was able to do uh, whenever they conquered the land of Canaan. That was what Dave, David was able to do as he you know, pushed the boundaries of the kingdom out. He was better at killing people than um, the Philistines or whoever was going up against him. And so that is what of course, makes a conqueror today is, uh, you know, you can look at the means of ISIS, that they're going around trying to terrorize people, terrorize people of what? Of dying. And that is the greatest power that they have is to offer someone death. Um, That's the greatest power of what our government has is to offer you death in some way. It doesn't have to just be a biological death. It could be You know financial death where if you don't follow certain laws they can take your money by taking your money they are giving you death in a way Um, or they can put you in jail which is like a societal death where we're going to take you away from society and from your family and then stick you in this little area and then now you're dead to society because you cannot interact with them you've been cut off from them so you have societal death financial death they can give you a psychological death uh, by even going through all those things. I'm sure that's what a lot of people have to deal with whenever they go to jail is a form of psychological death of now being cut off from all these things that you used as sustenance to just survive and to live. That now you're dying psychologically and they can give that to you Um But Christ's announcement of him rising from the dead is that he gives everyone who comes to follow him, you know, life after the grave. That all that power, that governments, that ISIS, or, you know, any other government, or anyone, or gang members that come up to you, or say, or offer you death, if you do not do what they tell you to do, that Christ is now giving to everyone who follows him. Um, life, and that's essentially the difference between a conqueror and a Christian, is that a conqueror, you know, like it says in Romans 8, we are more than conquerors, Um, because the Romans were the ones that were conquering, they were going throughout the world, expanding their empire, telling people to follow them, and if they don't follow them, then they were going to offer them death, which is what a conqueror does. If you do not do what I tell you, here is some form of death, one of the many forms of death. Um, and Christ on the other side is saying, or Christians, what we do is we point to Christ and we are saying, if you follow this person, you are given eternal life. And that is the difference between what makes a Christian and what makes um, a conqueror. And it's it's kind of like um, you know, what they say with an expert or someone who's really good at something is that they're just better at hitting a certain target than anyone else's. And that's what the Roman Empire was, that they were better at everyone at hitting this target of offering people death. And maybe that's what the United States is able to do now, that they're better than all the other countries possibly at giving people death. You know, I think that there's probably also financial wars going on of what the U.S. government is able to do, and so it's, they're also better at killing people financially. And so they, they offer people death in some way, and that's how they conquer them. But Christ, as they were saying with, uh, as I've heard people say with, with, what a genius is able to do, is they're able to hit a target no one else is seeing. And that Christ was able to hit a target not at by offering people death, but by offering people life through his death, burial, and resurrection. And that's what gets this stone carved out of the wall and rolling into the statue. Um, and the announcement now that after Christ's resurrection, he goes to his disciples and he says to them that all authority is given to me. And this is the good news. The good news is that God has taken charge of the world through Jesus' death and resurrection. And to the Jews, this is a scandal. That, and A scandal in the sense that they do believe in the same stories that the Christians believe. But they do not believe that Christ is the one who is um, the Messiah. That they got the story wrong. That this is not really what the true story is. Um, and you can go back to the election and talk about the Democrats and what they announced with... President um, Trump that he is not really the president this is a scandal this guy is not the person who's really in charge um, people fabricated uh, fabricated lies with Russia or um, he didn't get the popular vote vote um, he's not really the president of the United States and you have everyone you know saying that he not my president whatever, whatever. And this, of course, is just all a parody of what's happening with Christ right now in the world. And with the Jews, that they announce that Christ is not really the Messiah. He's not my Messiah. He's not the person that's really in charge of the world and what's going on. He's not um, the Christ. Um, And then with the Greeks, that to the Greeks this is folly. And the Greeks, they had their own stories um, of what happened and how they got there and where they are now. Like, it, they had a completely different story of what reality was um, with their different religions. I mean, you'd have to get into their mythology with the Iliad or just their whole creation story. That the whole story of, you know, the Hebrew creation and then the story of what led uh, the Israels to be the chosen people by God, to carry the oracles, like that. all The whole thing is just folly. Um, and that's how I see anyone who's outside from the United States, that they look at the United States right now and they just see the whole thing as folly. They see the whole thing as just this mess um, that they don't even really see themselves as a part of the story. And I think that's mostly of the people that I talk to and deal with about the Gospels, that they don't, they don't see anything from the Gospel or anything from the Bible, the, the whole story that the Jews are, are carrying on. They see the whole thing as, as folly because I think uh, at least the culture in the United States now is more closer to Greek culture than it is to Jewish culture um as in there's more emphasis on rationality and um you know where we we came from um some people aren't willing to actually say what they think how we got here but in modern day science you know we all come from stardust um it was just a random explosion there's no purpose or anything there is no god uh, if you look at the naturalist world that's uh, pervasive among the intellectuals in academia, that this is the actual story. That there's no purpose. We came from stardust, and then eventually evolution came along. You know, somehow, um, life came out of a soup, and then that developed into, you know, fish and whatever. And then eventually we get to us as as humans, as the most recent evolved state of life in the universe or at least here on earth and so that's the story at least in the naturalist world that this is the story of what's actually going on so this whole talk about you know god and things being bad and now things can be good with this person that happened two thousand years ago which we don't even we're not even sure if this guy actually existed or not the whole thing just doesn't make sense it's all folly And, of course, to the Jews, this is a scandal, and to the Greeks, uh, this just doesn't make sense. So I think um, reading N.T. Wright's book – I forget what chapter this is. Each slide is a chapter that I try to sum up and remember the things that I was thinking about as I was reading the book – so I can just go back. This is chapter one, two, three, four. I guess this is chapter four. He talks about why it is difficult for people to understand the gospel today in the Western world, and it's because of how they view of what Christianity is that it's it's not the full thing. Because I do think partly that uh, Christianity is a religious system like it has its own system and it has its own path to salvation and morality but that's not the big picture the the religious system as in the commands that jesus um says or the ten commandments um if you just isolate that then of course isolate going to heaven and then just saying this is what the gospel is this is the story of what's going on in the world. Excuse me. You reduce the gospel to just a relig- religious system of salvation and morality, which exhausts the power of the gospel by pulling out the story out of the Bible. It's no longer about the story anymore. It's just—it's just like um, Buddhism, where you hold this or follow this eightfold path, and by following these commands and doing these things and walking this way that in the end, then you can achieve nirvana, or the state of blissfulness. If you can get your mind to to see that nothing exists, that even you yourself do not exist, that the only thing, um, that we are all one, and then once you realize that, then you can achieve this state of nirvana. But Christianity, and the story of the Bible, and what the gospel is, is not a religious system. There is religious system in there, there are commands and stuff and there is salvation. But the story of salvation is that salvation actually comes first. This is, you know, one of the things that I've gotten from Timothy Keller quite a bit and also Ravi Zacharias is them showing us whenever God gives out this religious system or that he gives uh, the 10 commandments that there is first an announcement that people are saved, that you're first saved and then you get the religious system or the commandments of God. Um, Christ first saves people, gives them life, and then tells them about himself and um, through parables and telling people the first and second commandment. Um, now you follow those things because that is what it means ultimately to be human to live out this purpose that God has given people. Um, You can see uh, this flip in the the Ten Commandments where, I think it's in Exodus 20. I'm going to have to look this up. Exodus 20, you can start in the first chapter where God announces and spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So he's announcing there in verse 2 of Exodus 20, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then after he announces, look, I brought you out of the land of slavery, I brought you out of your, your sin, I've taken you away from the gods that you were worshiping, Now you shall have no other god before me. Now he gives them this religious system or the commandments, which is completely opposite of Judaism or um, Buddhism or Islam, where it's, okay, you first follow the commandments. First, have no other gods before me. First, do not make yourself a carved image. First, uh, do not take... My name in vain, and if you can follow this stuff, then I will save you. But the religious system—I mean—and it's not really a system because it's first—it's uh, first God saving us from our sins. You can see this pattern also repeated. I think it's in First Peter, maybe the beginning of Second Peter, but it's this little moral map. Yeah, it's in Second Peter. Here in verse first, Second Peter one. In verse Um, four, I'm just going to back up to verse three, where His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. And then here we go. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. That's the announcement that everyone who is in Christ, everyone who is a Christian has escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire or because of a lustful nature um the apostle paul or the apostle peter is announcing look you all have been saved and because of this for this very reason we move into verse five for this very reason because you have been saved make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue virtue with knowledge and he goes all the way down this moral map giving people now this religious system the religious system is now given after the fact people have been saved, which is the announcement of the gospel. Um, and I was just going to show there the difference between um, most religious systems and in the Bible. That it's not really a religious system. And to think of it as a religious system is. Also to exhaust it of its power, as I said before, that Christ is now the person who's in charge. And because he is in charge, because he is the one that is on the throne on high, now he's given people these commands to go throughout the world and to live out that life that the Apostle Peter is painting there. Or then you could read the Sermon on the Mount, and read all those commandments there. Now he has first saved us. Now we, we take this and it transforms us. Um, and it's given. it gives those commandments and Christ's ideas more power to them now than it just being simply things you do in order to be saved or keep your salvation. Because um, the gospel is not so much about following that stuff. Because if it is all about that, that's it then the gospel simply becomes good advice which i think has what the gospel has deteriorated in some sense to become simply good advice where you know a preacher will get up to the pulpit on sunday and then tell people how to act in the world <clears throat> this is how you should be this is what you should do um and if you just keep it at that if you just if you do not have the good advice inside the story then i kind of i lose myself and i i lose a sense of understanding of why i should follow these rules in the first place like what is so important about um going and doing these things or not doing things that i want to do you know do not look at a person um with lust um for it's like committing adultery um And the only way I think that we can keep people from doing that um, without the gospel is showing them in a way that that's what they want. Like you do not want to look after this person with lust. You do not want to act out in these ways sexually because it's not good for you. This is good advice all around. But if you see it in the bigger picture of the gospel is that going and following these laws that Christ has put out, that it's no longer about you know following these abstract, these impersonal rules. That these commands, um, and these statements, and these teachings are actually coming from a person, and that it creates a, a more intimate way. Of coming to know God and coming to know Christ is to live out through these commandments and then it's not so much anymore of making sense of the commandments and saying hey look if you do this then you're not going to then your life is going to be worse you do you actually don't want to do this thing that you're professing to say you want to do which is the best way to convince someone Of good advice that you have for them is to say, "Look, you actually want this," then convince them that they actually want this. Um, Which is, I think, the state of you know a lot of churches today, or lessons that I've heard is it comes only in the context of, "Look, this is good. This this would be good for you to do. This is good advice." But the gospel is more about Christ's coronation than um, his death. That his death is a part of it. His death is a part of the gospel, that you need his death to pay for the sin. Um, but his resurrection is, of course, the announcement that he is the one in charge. He is the one who is in authority. He is the one um, who is sitting on the throne on high um, above every other authority that is in a um, a high office and whatever government they're in. We can say Donald Trump in this sense. That ultimately Christ is the one who is in charge. Now in this this chapter I think is mostly well, the last chapter was four, and this one is three. The chapter five I think is mostly N T writes. Um, lamentation on the state of the church of where a lot of people in the church believe the end of the story is going to heaven. And once we get to heaven, that's it. It's over. Um, and so the focus has become on heaven and not on the earth. And by taking away our focus from the earth, you kind of lose A lot of the sense of meaning of what it means to be a Christian and why it is important to go out and to, you know, do the work of the gospel is because if you've seen the end, that's heaven. That means right now, since I have heaven, since I'm good, I can do pretty much anything that I want as long as still have heaven. You know, I'm all right. I can watch all the football that I want. I can watch all the Netflix that I want. I can do um anything that i want to just kind of be choked by the by the thorns of the world just as long as i'm still going to church i'm still clocking in clocking out you know getting this religious system of what it means to be a christian um and following this eightfold path or following the first and second commandment or the commandments that god has given us Um, As long as I'm still doing that, I still got my salvation. I'm still in check. I'm gonna get heaven in the end. But of course, um, NT Wright believes, and I also believe this in in a sense. um, But I don't want to say it too strongly because I do see a lot of people out there who believe that heaven is the end, doing a lot of work. That they're out there, they're working for the sake of the gospel. They're they're trying to save souls. They're trying to talk to people about the gospel and they're also in the church um, working very di- diligently to keep up um, with the relationships that are that are there in church. And so I don't want to say this too strongly that because people think heaven is the end that it um, kind of exhausts them of their meaning because I see too many people out there who do believe – Heaven is the end and they're just they're out there working. And so I, I don't want to say it too strongly, but I see for me that reading NT Wright's uh, version of this that I do see the importance of this earth of going out into the world and conquering it, or more than conquering it with um, you know, with the battlement or with the armament that Christ is giving us through his commandments, and living the gospel out in my own life. I pulled this quote from page 99. I actually forgot what this quote was, but I'll just go ahead and read it. There are, sadly, some people for whom the good news, as they have been taught it, leaves them with a vacuum. What is there to do in the meantime? And I think that's the whole heaven narrative of the gospel, Follow these rules, you'll get heaven in the end, and it kind of exhausts any sort of meaning that is happening currently. That it's hard to see how your action in the world has any meaning in the long run, which I believe and desire for myself a lasting meaning. And as I talk to other people, especially my own age, um or of all ages that they want something that means that has meaning that carries on in over into eternity. And because of the way we view heaven now, it's, it's like, okay, as long as I get into heaven, then things just, um, everything that I do here just kind of dissipates and it's gone. I'm in heaven. Everything's fine. But this of course misses the view and the vision, or you can Think of this in terms of the symbolic – or the symbolism of the dream of Nebuchadnezzar of this rock being carved of the mountain, hitting this statue, and then spreading throughout the earth. um, And one of N.T. Wright's favorite quotes in the Bible is praying um, the model prayer where Christ talks – he says – I just want to look it up to see what it says exactly because I can't remember the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. That's the point of emphasis that he makes on earth as it is in heaven. That the state of the church today has kind of lost that sense of bringing heaven to earth instead of getting us to heaven. Then it has to be, you know, of course, both ways. In Christ's statement of Jacob's ladder, of angels ascending and descending into heaven, then it has to go both ways. That heaven has to come to earth in order for earth to go to heaven and have this marriage that he says that he points to in the end of Revelation and I have to go back and read over the end of Revelation again because I've read it over and I didn't really see I guess that exact painting of heaven and earth um, being painted as marrying excuse me as marrying um, at the end of uh, Revelation so Anyways, you have to have both. And you can read from the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer, that your will be done on earth, your will be done, your your kingdom come, your will be done. And kingdom and will are parallel. Like they you can see them as the same thing, not a kingdom as, you know, these walls that are being built um or the structures that are being built out of stone or whatever material, but it's God's will is coming into the earth or coming into my life or coming into your life and being built into you and you becoming that structure of God's temple, of God's dwelling place. Um... And I believe that is the focus here of what the good news and what the gospel is, is that now Christ is the one in charge, and now God's will, and this is what his commandments become, is ultimately moving into us and into you and being built around you where now you become God's dwelling place. And how you become God's dwelling place is by abiding in his word, and by abiding in his word, you abide in his love as it was as it explained in John 15, that you abide in me and I in you, um, that if you abide in his love, then it's like you're obeying his commandments, which again changes the entire concept of why we obey the commandments. It's not because it's good advice, even though it is good advice, and you can see how it is good advice. You can do scientific studies on all sorts of things. I don't really want to go into that. I just want to talk about how the relationship between these laws are different than you could say traffic laws where we might go and go the speed limit or go five miles an hour over the speed limit just trying to make sure that the cops don't come after us and then give us a ticket and give us you know a financial death you know conquer us with financial death that we're not obeying those laws, because there's no person really behind him. We don't have a relationship with the police officer or with the judges or with any of the people that have to do with the law. Of course, if unless you're married or your dad's a police officer, I'm just saying generally, traffic laws are kind of just these abstract things that we follow just to keep us from not getting in trouble. But Christ in... Uh, John 15 is now saying that his commandments are now our acts of love toward him if we love him then we're going to abide in him and how we abide in him is by following what he says and so behind the Sermon on the Mount behind the greatest and the second greatest commandment is not this person who's going to give us a ticket and let's see how much we can get away from but it's a way that we can now move more into god more into heaven and more into the gospel and i know the word relationship and having a personal personal relationship with christ and with god is not in the bible but if you read john 15 that is about as close as you can get into having a relationship with god is by abiding in his word abiding in his love it's now that he is living in us and we are living in him um, that it changes this religious system it's not no longer a religious system but it's an actual person that we are in a relationship with and so seeing in the, the way the Western world as N.T. Wright says seeing the world or seeing Christianity as this religious system, follow this path, follow these commandments, do them, you'll get salvation, um, exhaust it of its story, and it also exhaust it of the meaning of what's going on in the gospel right now. And of course, to exhaust it of its power. Oh, good news was either the official announcement of early Roman emperor's ascension, should probably have an apostrophe there ascension to the throne of some great military victory or celebration i think I've, i kind of already talked about that in with octavian where it's the announcement and also with the analogy of people going around and announcing that trump is now president um that that's what good news if, um was in ancient rome um is this chapter 8 No, this is chapter 6. The world's vision and the church's vision are different. And I think this is probably one that I find the most interesting in this passage and something that really kind of sparked um, some ideas for me because I do feel like there is a conflict between religion and science. And it's not that they are incompatible. And I think this is the real difference and why there's a tension between science and between religion is because their goals and what they see in the world are different, and they are in fact in conflict with each other. And the picture that I have over here is a, a picture of the angel Michael showing Adam after his fall a vision of everything, of the whole story. And through that vision, you're seeing the way the Bible is saying how we should see the story of time. You know, see the story of everything that we're all living. That the story is more about our separation from God and the sin that we're in and how God is now going to restore us back to Him. Than it is about this word, this slippery word that's used... um, you know, by the people who are professing the advancement of technology is this word progress. And this is, I think, the real difference. Um, because the story right now is about our separation from God and getting back to Him than it is about progress and progressing toward technological advancements. Um, and I think those two different ideas of our course are in conflict with each other. Because you can go back and you can just think about Israel being in the desert and moving away from this advanced society in in Egypt. They were the most advanced society in the world at that time, at least I I think they were. Um, I don't really say that with a lot of authority, but they they left a place that was more civilized, that was more advanced in technology and in – in the world of progress. Like they were more closely progressed to where we are today than what Israel did whenever they left it and they went into the wilderness and they wandered around for 40 years not doing anything. I mean, it seems like they weren't doing anything, but they were learning about the sacrifices, they were learning about sin, and they were learning about their separation from God, and they were also learning how to obey God's commandments. And there's course a real conflict between these because it seems like and it really does show that um, the vision of Christianity and the gospel is saying that the advancement of technology and progressing is not really all that important because all this stuff that technology and that um, everyone is trying to fix in the world is going to be fixed it's already set into play But what really needs to be worked on right now is you, is me. You need to get away from all your sin and the slavery that is holding you back from God, which is in the land of slavery, and move into the desert and get rid of all that stuff that is separating you from God and then move into his commandments and learn how to have a relationship with him, how to abide in him and it's through his words. And these are of course two totally different totally different visions that are in complete I think conflict with each other cuz you know in the world today we hold up people like Elon Musk who seem to be very close to getting us outside of you know the earth and moving us into space now. You know, it's very exciting to read about Elon Musk and what he's doing and how productive he is. And also, our I think our worship of people who are highly productive is also our worship of this word progress. And that people who are extremely productive that do all these things, you know, like Elon Musk. Um, I mean, I don't know how many hours a week that he works, but I've just heard these insane numbers that he sleeps in his Tesla... Factory floor, whenever he was pushing out a new model, I guess. That he is like super, he's a super productive person. And um, you see, in the desert, and what the Israelites were doing out there, it doesn't seem very productive toward the advancement of technology at all. In fact, I do think a lot of people are correct to point at, at Christians at holding back the advancements of. Technology and progress. And as, uh, like, you can, if you listen to people talk about progress and the things that we're progressing to, the biggest thing that's always brought up, if you pay attention from now on, if you listen to say, look, things are getting better, we are um, advancing in medicine and, um, you know different techniques and the technology in order to, to save lives. It's to, to save people, allow them to live longer. But it's the Christian claim that Christ died and rose from the dead, and then everyone who puts their belief in Him are now going to model that same thing. That they model that with with baptism by going into the into the water and coming out a new cre- creation. And now that this whole life issue that, you know, the advancements of technology are saying that they are defeating is already defeated in Christ. He has already won it. The thing that is really the problem is what, you know, Michael is showing Adam here in this picture is the sin that is separating us from that source of life, which is God. And so I think this is the areas of the vision of between the world and the church or between the world and, and the gospel and why it makes it difficult for people to see the gospel is that we are making all these you know great progresses and advancements in technology that are allowing people to stay alive longer and have more meaningful lives and a life more full of well-being – while as Christians we profess all this stuff is already taken care of, it's already over, and I feel like I'm just repeating myself, so I'm, I'll move into this next point, that it talks in the end of First Corinthians 15, where Paul declares, Be steadfast and always, abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Uh, I think it's a little ironic, not ironic, but when we talk about the resurrection and going to heaven, it makes it seem that all of our advancements in technology is just laid to waste. Like it, it kind of almost exhausts all the meaning of this idea of progress, of working toward, you know, allowing people to stay alive longer and having a better life, a life that is more full of well being. Like in the end, when you go and you start working on this stuff, as I've you know had conversations with friends when they go and they work a job that doesn't really have anything to do directly for the gospel, that it loses its, its meaning um, to them. And I've even felt this for myself as I go to this job. I'm about to go to it here um, in a few hours. That I'm going to go, I'm going to clock in, and I'm going to work. But I'm just working... And my job isn't really necessarily to help people live longer, but it's to give people a life that is, has more well-being or a better life. But in the end, if they aren't seeing the vision of the church or seeing the vision of the gospel, it's just they're lost, their souls are lost, they're gone. And so all that meaning isn't carried over into eternity it isn't carried over into the next life. I don't get to carry that work with me when I go into the grave, when I die. And so I, I'm just saying this is still a part of the conflict. But I want to say ironic, but I say that, that, Christ, or that Paul, the Apostle Paul, ends this um, chapter on the resurrection... I think very deliberately telling people, look, stay steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your work is not in vain in the Lord. That the things that you do for Christ, the things that you do for the person who's in charge of everything, that stuff is not going to be taken away from you. And so to always abound inside that work and to find areas where you can work for Him, um, directly or indirectly, and I, of course, do believe that going to work and working hard at the job that I work at now currently is my work ultimately for Him. Um, you know, there's several verses in the Bible or in the New Testament you know, telling people um, to realize that when you are your boss or your master, whatever he tells you, work for Him as if it were Christ. You know as if it were Jesus so just going to my job now currently today and working at it as if it's Christ himself giving me you know whatever my boss tells me to do and and so it puts meaning inside of everything in my life if you look at the gospel I think in this way more otherwise things seem to to start to fragment um, to disorient, and then you start to lose um, any kind of sense of meaning um, other than going to church, worshiping God, you know, singing, saying a prayer, and doing this, and then you leave, and then it's all that meaning, all what you do, it just it seems like it doesn't matter anymore. But what the Apostle Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians 15 is that everything that you do for Christ, you know, whether you eat or drink, all in the name of the Lord, everything now is infused with eternal meaning that is going to be carried over with you into eternity. The good news is also a partly or partly a revelation of who God is. Now, there have been some ideas of who God is that have been professed throughout time. You know, the Greeks, they all thought that um, the gods were inside of reality. Of course, God is, but they did not see the gods as acting outside of space-time. The God of the Bible is not an object that is in the world, but a spirit that is residing over it. Um, and so it can be kind of difficult to understand who God is exactly. Sometimes people have pointed back to the God of the Old Testament and they'll say that it's a different God than in the New Testament, but um I don't think that's a, a fair representation of who God is by pointing to the Old Testament and showing God's anger toward people. I think it's um, does it disservice? Not a disservice, but it's not a good representation of God because it doesn't take in the picture of what God is doing with the Israelites. Because the one thing with the vision that I talked about earlier, as the gospel says that God is trying to bring man back into himself, um, we can see the nature of what God wants and what his desires. So if his... If his nature was only this angry God that's normally painted um, painted to represent him, then I have I wonder why is he doing all this stuff for man to bring us back to him, you know, with saving them from the the land of slavery and trying to show, you know, the Israelites how to, you know, have a relationship with him, how to give him, by giving them these commandments. Um And it's like, why is God going through all this work? And then the answer, of course, ultimately is to go back to Jesus and to show the nature of God through Christ. You know, it it says that, it says in um, Hebrews, the first chapter, that Jesus is the perfect or the exact imprint of his nature. Um, he is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. Um, so to look at Christ is to ultimately see uh, who God is. It's the revelation of who God is, is this person on the cross. And you can see on the cross the answer of what God desires. And it's he has this strong, and I say the word strong, but I don't know of any other word that I can think of that Will show the power and or how strongly God wants us to be with him and us um, to be with him and he to be with us that it the answer of how badly he wants it and how much he wants us to come to him and is the cross, and you can see on, on the cross of Jesus going and dying for us in our stead and paying the price is at the depths of his love and the depths of his desire. Is more than I've ever desired anything, and more than I've ever loved anything. And so it's hard, even for me, to sit here and to meditate on how much God actually wants me, how much God actually wants you, and desires you and desires me and loves us. Because I've never gone to the lengths of what Christ or what God has gone through, you know, with His Son, putting Him on the cross to bring us back to Him to end that gap and to bring build a bridge over that chasm of sin that we have all created. Um, and so the answer to the gospel, or in the gospel, is the answer to who God is also. It's the revelation of, of this being, of this thing that is not inside of the world but outside of it. And of course through the gospel, we not only come to know God, Seeing Christ on the cross is partly to know God and who He is and how much He desires to be with me and for me to be with Him. But also it's to be known by God. And I don't really understand that idea so much. I was earlier, I was on BibleHub.com looking through to try to understand what it means to be known by god and matthew Paul's commentary says or rather after you received after you are received of god approved of him made through christ acceptable to him which is much more than true comprehension comprehension of god in your notion and understanding that didn't really tell me a whole lot um i think i'll probably just have to keep reading to understand what it mean, means to be known by god or rather to be known by God, who is this? This is, I don't know how to say that name. There's a different commentator on this. Or rather are known of God. In speaking of the Galatians as coming to know God, it might seem as if too much stress was laid on the human side of the process and therefore by way of correction the apostle presents also the divine side. Any true and saving knowledge of God has for its converse the being known of God, recognition by God, and acceptance by Him, such as involved in the admission of the believer into the Messianic kingdom. The word know, or gnosis, or gnosis, the beginning word of word gnostic, I you know has a lot of deep, deep meaning to it. Might even be able to present like an entire lesson, an entire talk just on the word no" because there's many different uses of that word in the old Bible or in the Old Testament or just throughout the Bible, really. The word no" can be used to describe a sexual relationship between people. like it says um, that Joseph did not know Mary. I mean, she was pregnant with Jesus, so they were not known. And it has this; it can't have like this. I um, wouldn't not just sexual knowledge, but like an intimate knowledge of a person. And so, to be known by God, it's it's this uh, not bilateral, but this double dual movement of this being over here, which is God, and this being over here, which is us, and both of us coming to get or coming and knowing each other and you know it's said that the people who are going to receive eternal life are the ones that are written in the book of uh, written in God's book. so he has to know your name in some sense and he has to know you and he has to know me in, in one ways, That we come to know God is through the gospel, and that's also a way that He comes to know us. I know, in um, I was just I just had a thought on the knowledge of God. This yeah, this was, and um, when Christ comes back and everyone is transformed, you know, you have the goats and then you have the lambs that ultimately. What prevents people from being saved and coming to Christ is that he says that he never knew you. He never knew who this person was. May have known of them, but the word no, I, I can't dig into it deep enough as much as I want to go because I know that there has to be a, a depth of knowledge and, and wealth to this word knowing is that we get to learn more of who God is, and it's like this intimate knowledge, it can even be, be said. Um, like, you know, it, it talks about with, with David, whenever they would have this younger woman come and sleep with him to keep him warm, but he did not know her, which is a way of saying that he did not have sexual relations with her. He was not didn't have an intimate knowledge of her. And it's, I think it's that same language that it's used to come to know God, to have a knowledge of Him, is that intimate knowledge and also for Him to have an intimate knowledge of us. Um, I know with some of the atheists and some of the people that do not want to have a knowledge of God, they also do not want God to have a knowledge of them. I know many of them have professed a kind of an annoyance, of having someone in the sky looking down at them at all times and how they just don't want that to be. They don't want somebody to have a knowledge of what they're doing all the time. They do all these things in secret that they don't want God to know about. And so that's kind of like the the opposite end of it is is these people that don't want to have a knowledge of God, that they um, – They keep a knowledge of God from happening because they don't want God to know about them. And so I think what God does in in that sense of knowledge is that he grants them their wishes, that he does not get to know them. And then, of course, doesn't get to be known by him, and they don't get to know him either, that his knowledge, the knowledge of him is concealed from them. Um Now I was thinking about looking up another... I'm going to go ahead and do it. Um, Another verse talking about the knowledge of God. That's what it is. 2 Corinthians um, 10, 3 through 5. See, Apostle Paul here specifically talking about argumentation and what we as Christians are doing whenever we go and talk to people is that our means of warfare for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, which is the way, the old way of things of doing, the way, the how David conquered, um, you know, the rest of Canaan, you know, how the Roman Empire conquered the world, you know, how the American... You, the U.S. government is doing it how British was doing it over the U.S. government how Russia and Syria are doing it You know, that's the ways of their warfare but our warfare is different um, our war for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but have divine power to destroy strongholds and where are these strongholds uh, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and so when i interact with people interact with atheists or people that who do not have a knowledge of god and do not want to have a knowledge of god is that they put up these opinions and arguments for not knowing who god is and it's like they they put up these opinions and they put up these arguments not because that they're good arguments but because they do not want to have a knowledge of god and also they do not want to be known by God. So, in a way, just to go back to uh, the true God cannot be an object in the world, um, that we become, in a way, an idea in God's mind whenever we draw closer into Him and we believe in the gospel and we follow the gospel and obey the gospel. It is a way of becoming known by God and having, in a way, a relationship with Him. Of what I think is what Paul is saying in Galatians 4, verse 9. Um, and this is the last slide, the last chapter, of talking about becoming transformed by the gospel through prayer. And the way most people pray in the Western world, and I, and I do agree, when I go to church where I am now, or places where I have been to church, most people Start with their prayers, and there's nothing wrong with praying for people to be heal, healed of their illnesses. But daily bread and being delivered from illnesses are normally the things that are coming to top priority for Christians whenever they pray about things. Um, at least that's what it seems. It may be true, may not be true. But there's a way that the model prayer has kind of lost its power because um, N.T. Wright believes, and I think he's right, I think he's correct, that the model prayer is also a list of priorities. That when you go through, you know, our Father in Heaven, let me go back to the Lord's Prayer me just pull out this meme here. I don't know if it's a meme, but our Father who art in heaven. Um, that when you start with our Father who art in heaven, that you recognize God as your Father, and that that is your relationship to Him. It's not that He is a King first, but that you recognize Him as your Father first, um, not as a King servant relationship in prayer, but that He is your Father, your spiritual Father. And you recognize um, His holiness, which is the whole problem of where we are in the first place. That God is holy and we have ruined ourselves that has has caused the separation between Him and His his holiness. And He's trying to bring us back to Him. And then we pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And there's that parallel again between God's kingdom and His will. And it's partly between um, our our own wills that are in conflict with His, where His kingdom is not fully in our own being and in our own life, where the conflicts arises and when where sin comes out, and we, and also in all the earth, not just with us, but just in all the earth is bringing God's will, not through the same means of what people have brought the will of their kingdoms with the Roman Empire, or the United States, or any kind of place that's in power now. Not through those same memes, but through arguments and also being you know, dressed in the commandments, in the dressed in the commandments and the teachings of Christ that you read now his sermon on the mount and putting those commandments and those thoughts and those teachings in our own lives and becoming more like Christ and now bringing his will out into the world and his gospel out into the world. And then after that, descending of priorities, then moving into asking for our daily bread, which is in the prayer. And I want to make an emphasis of that because I have heard plenty of people critique the way people pray. And this is kind of a critique on how other people critique, which I don't want to fall into the same category, that they just critique it. They just say this is what they do. And to me it seems like it almost discourages people from praying. And I don't want to discourage people for praying for the sickness of other people. I don't want to discourage people from asking for daily bread or for delivering us from temptation. Um I want um, people to be encouraged to pray, but also to pray with this mind, with this in mind. that Father that God is your Father, that He is holy, um, and then asking for His kingdom to come. And of course, having that in mind, there is going to be some conflicts between your will and God's will even in Christ's own life, there was a a conflict between Christ's will in one moment and God's will in the next, where he asked God to remove this cup from him, but your will be done. And eventually that cup was not taken away from him, that God still gave him the cup to drink from, um, which was going to the cross and drinking from God's cup of wrath so that way his desire to be with us can be fulfilled. And so treating it as a descending priority and now praying this prayer into our own lives will create a transformation into you and into me to bring the gospel into ourselves. And as we fill, our, fill ourselves up with the gospel and with God's will, it will just happen naturally as we go out into the world and bring God's will into the earth and into all creation. And So that is the end of this book, and that's going to be the end of this video. I think this has lasted as long as I wanted it to, so I think I'm just going to end it there. Thank you for listening or watching. Thank you.